that the Christmas season is coming upon us very quickly. And given that that is true, perhaps you are feeling the stress right now of finding that perfect gift for all of the people that you love. But I must say that gift giving is not the easiest proposition in life, is it? You know, my British Jewish mother was from a family of six siblings in total, all of whom were girls. So there was my mother and her five other sisters. And my mother and her sisters, in turn, produced 13 grandchildren, eight girls, and five boys. And by the way, my mother produced four out of those five boys. The other five sisters between them could only produce one other boy. Suffice it to say then, outside of my mother, all of the other sisters knew mostly from raising girls. And as we were growing up, our respective families would typically come together on gift-giving occasions like Hanukkah in the Jewish culture and birthdays, when all of the aunts would give gifts to all of their nieces and nephews. And one of my aunts in particular actually had the audacity to give my brother and me clothes. <laughs> I mean, come on. Clothes? I mean, you don't give clothes to young boys as gifts. I mean, talk about being clueless when it comes to giving gifts to young boys. Let me tell you something. Young boys don't want clothes. They want toys. They want sporting goods. They want G.I. Joes. They want model airplanes. But don't give them clothes, for goodness sakes. I remember one year when my own son, my little J Jacob, he was a little tyke, probably about three years old, and somebody gave him this really snazzy little sweater as a Hanukkah gift. And when Jacob unwrapped the sweater, he took one look at the sweater, and he took one look at the person who gave it to him. And he finally asked, but where's my present? <laughs> Clothes don't count. Not for young boys anyways. But I'll tell you, you want to know real stress. How about buying a gift for your wife? That is not the easiest proposition in life for most guys. And by the way, here is what one man writes about what not to buy your wife. Okay? He writes about what not to buy your wife, and I quote. He says, don't buy anything that plugs in. <laughs> Any electronics purchases, including big screen TVs, inconspicuously purchased right before the Super Bowl will probably be seen by your wife as utilitarian. Own up, guys, you probably bought that TV for yourself, didn't you? Right? Who's kidding who here? Well, next, the same author who writes what not to buy your wives, he says, don't buy clothing that involves sizes. Because the chances are one in 7,000 that you'll get her size right, and your wife will be offended the other 6,999 times. He also writes, don't buy jewelry 
Because he says, the jewelry that your wife wants, you can't afford. <laughs> and the jewelry that you can't afford, she don't want. <laughs> wow. Stressful, right? Gift giving is not the easiest proposition to be sure, especially when it comes to your wife. And what about the wide diversity and range of gifts that we receive from others? You know, there are some people who have a knack for giving great gifts. But other people, eh, not such great gifts, right? Some gifts we derive a lot of use and enjoyment from, but others might wind up collecting dust on a shelf. Or we might even end up getting rid of those gifts in the end. Gift giving is not the easiest proposition in life. An American Express survey about Christmas gifts found that the number one worst holiday gift, here's what it was, guess, it was fruitcake. 31% of respondents chose fruitcake from a list of the worst possible holiday gifts. And I will tell you, by the way, that fruitcake even finished ahead of no gift at all. In, in the same survey, when asked how to dispose of a bad gift, 30% of respondents said they would hide it in the closet. 21% said they would return it. And 19% said they would give it away to somebody else. All of which goes to say that if you get fruitcake at the holidays, there is an excellent chance that the person giving it to you is getting rid of a gift they didn't want themselves. <laughs> so why am I talking about gifts today? Well, for one, our society seems wholly resigned to the idea of gift giving at this season of the year. In fact, turn on your TV sets and almost every TV commercial has some gift suggestion that ad advertisers want you to consider giving. And do you find that the commercials know no limits these days? I mean, you might even see this commercial, I saw one, by the way, of this husband giving his wife a new Lexus wrapped up in a bow. I'll tell you, I would just love to be able to afford to give somebody a Lexus as a Christmas gift. But there is a more important reason that I speak about gifts this morning. Because, you see, Christmas itself speaks to us of a gift. In fact, I would argue that it speaks to us of the ultimate gift. Some people far and few between have a knack for giving us good gifts. But I would submit to you this morning that the greatest gift is God's. It is a gift which demands our full consideration. And so I would ask that you turn with me this morning to the passage that we will be looking at it's in Isaiah chapter 9 and verses 6 and 7. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. And it is a passage in the Hebrew Bible that prophetically described the gift of God. And if you have never conceived of the message of Christmas as a Jewish message, or if you have never conceived of Christmas as a Jewish holiday, Wait till you see our text this morning, because this will radically change and challenge your appreciation of the message 
of, Christ, of Christmas, its origins are right here in the Hebrew Bible. Now let me briefly, briefly give you the context and background of our passage this morning because Isaiah was giving his readers here a prophecy of hope and encouragement for the future when Israel would ultimately be liberated from her oppressors. And Israel certainly had and has no shortage of those throughout history or even today that have oppressed her and continue to oppress her. And at the very center of this prophecy is a child. The Hebrew says, Ki yeled yulad lanim, for a child will be born to us. Now, upon first glance, when you see those words, we might say to, your, to ourselves, for a child will be born to us. So what? That happens every day. Children are born every day. That's commonplace. I have two of my own. And so what's the big deal here about a child that will be born? And let me say to you, it would be a big deal because it doesn't say that it would be a yalda or that a girl would be born to us. It doesn't say yeladim, that children would be born to us. It says in the Hebrew, ki yeled yuladlanu. And while you may not get this reading in your English translations, the Hebrew here is masculine. Literally, it says a boy will be born to us. Now, I could still say, so what? What's the big deal about a child being born who also happens to be of the masculine gender? Well, what makes this boy so unique is what is said about him in this text. And specifically, I would like us to observe that there are three things that should help us to appreciate how special and unique this child would be. First of all, he is the gift of God. Okay, would you look at verse 6? Isaiah 9, verse 6 says this. For a child will be born to us and then it says, a son will be what? Given to us. Though he would be the product of human birth, he is nevertheless the gift of God. It is the very nature of the Hebrew verb natan, which just means to give, that informs us that this individual is the gracious gift of God. This son is God's gift to us. And by the way, even earlier in Israel's history than this, even earlier than this passage that we see in Isaiah 9, God had given promises concerning this very son. For example, God promised to King David that he would have a messianic descendant. And God said of this descendant, the, the Messiah, that he would be a father to him, and this, the Messiah, this descendant, would be a son to him. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Just two chapters previous to our own, in Isaiah chapter 7, God predicted, we sang this song, by the way, Emmanuel, right? God predicted that a young woman would conceive and bear a son who would be assigned to his people of Emmanuel, God with us. In Psalm 2, the Messianic king is described as God's son. And here again, in Isaiah 9, 6, we see further promise 
of the Son whom God would ultimately give to us. So think about it. This child who would be humanly born is nevertheless the Son who would be divinely given to us. And so there are two things about him. Human birth, divine origin. So this is no ordinary child, and you can be sure of that. He is the gift of God. But notice, too, in our text, the recipients of the gift are also specifically named in this text. And if you think about it, gifts by their very nature have to have a recipient or recipients. Otherwise, it's not a gift, right? You can't have a gift without a giver, but you also can have a gift without a recipient. Both of those elements are necessary for a gift transaction to occur. In fact, I would actually correct that. I would say there are three elements necessary for the transaction of a gift. You need, number one, a giver. Number two, you need a recipient. Number three, you need the thing being given. It's not rocket science, right? This gift is no different. We have a giver, God. We have the gift, the Son. And now we come to the third element of this gift, the recipient. And the Hebrew text says, ki yelad yulad lanu, bain nitan lanu. There was a word I said twice, lanu. Prepositional phrase, it means to us. This child and this would be born to us, this son would be given to us. We are the recipients of the gift. We are the beneficiaries. That is, we, the Jewish people, first and foremost, are the beneficiaries and the recipients of the special child given here, who was Isaiah's original audience. The Jewish people would be the recipients of the gift of this child, son. Moreover, the Messiah would be Jewish himself. And by the way, before I go any further, it is universally accepted by the ancient rabbis that this passage is a messianic prophecy and that it refers to the coming future messianic king. He would come from the nation of Israel. He would be of the seed of Abraham. He would be descendant of King David. And by the way, not that that would preclude his ministry to the Gentiles or to the other nations, mind you. Of course, it wouldn't. The Gentiles were always in God's plan. Remember his promise to Abraham, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Right? But, he, but this son would be given first and foremost, Lanu, to us, to Israel. And by the way, this is one of the reasons why elsewhere in Scripture, Jesus could say, salvation is of who? Jews. And the Apostle Paul says the gospel is to the Jew first. Edith Schaefer, the wife of famous Christian philosopher and author Francis Schaefer, wrote a book, and it was called Christianity is Jewish. And you thought that Christmas was a Gentile holiday and celebration. Isaiah has news for us, doesn't he? The scriptures say that he came unto his own, 
And Galatians 4.4 says, But in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. You know, we have been so conditioned to think of Christmas as a Gentile holiday and that the incarnation is a Gentile message, but it isn't at all. It's right here in the Hebrew Bible. So the first uniqueness about this predicted son is that he would be the gift of God. But that's not all. Not only is he unique because he's the gift of God, but the second uniqueness about him in our text this morning is that he manifests the very character of God. And we see that from his designations. From the unique names and titles given to him here at the end of verse 6. So let's go back to verse 6, Isaiah 9. It says, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. By the way, names in the Hebrew Bible are given as an expression of a person's character. They convey or reveal character. Jewish people, the Hebrew people in the Old Testament, didn't just name their children happenstance. Names are meant to convey character. In fact, when the Bible talks about the name of God, right, it is referring to God's expressed character and all that we know of him from Scripture. And so from the designations and the titles and names given to this individual here in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, these are names that can only ever apply to God. And as we see that, we understand that he manifests the very character of God. And so would you consider with me briefly these four names that we see here? The first one is Wonderful Counselor. By the way, that phrase could equally be translated differently in the Hebrew. It could be translated a wonder of a counselor or a counselor of wonders. It is a term which is used over and over again in Scripture of God himself because God is wondrous in his works and he's wondrous in his counsel. The term is always used to describe God's wondrous works or counsel. In fact, in Isaiah 29, 28 verse 29, using the same Hebrew term, it says, all this also comes from the Lord Almighty, wonderful in counsel, same term, and magnificent in wisdom. Only God is wonderful in counsel. Yet so too is the Son spoken of here in Isaiah chapter 9. In fact, we know from elsewhere in Scripture that the Messiah would be somebody valued and prized for his wisdom in counsel. And you don't have to turn there, but I want to read to you a very small passage that speaks about the future messianic kingdom when many will come to Jerusalem to seek his wisdom. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, allow me to read that for you. It says, And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, and that we may walk in his paths, for the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. The Son manifests God's character 
in that he too is wonderful in counsel. That term is only ever used in scripture about God himself. Let's think of the next descriptive title, the mighty God. By the way, if you know something about Jewish mothers, they often have this divine concept about their kids. You know, my son, the doctor, or my son, the lawyer, right? But that's not what this is about. If you call somebody El Gibor, the mighty God, you better be sure that that person is God himself. And by the way, that term, El Gibor, the mighty God, is also only ever used of God himself. Isaiah 10, verse 21 says, A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to El Gibor, the mighty God. And yet, even the Messiah himself would bear that very same title, El Gibor, the mighty God. Next, he would call, be called Aviad, or the Eternal Father, or the Father of Eternity. And we know, by the way, in Scripture, that God himself is very often likened to a father who cares for his children. In fact, we call him our Heavenly Father, don't we? He's also called in Scripture the Father of Lights. And so being in very nature God himself, we ought not to be surprised that the Messiah himself will also be perpetually cared for his people as a father would. And Micah chapter 5, verse 2, is another verse that speaks of the Messiah's eternality, of his eternal nature. Let me read that passage for you. Micah 5, 2 says, But as for you, Bethlehem Ephratah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, it wasn't a very significant town. But from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago. In fact, they are from the days of eternity. Think about that for a second. He would be born in the future, and yet his origins are from eternity. Do you get that? He would pre-exist his human birth. John tells us that too. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was what? God. And he became human for us. And so not only is the Messiah the wonderful counselor, not only is he the mighty God, but he's also the eternal father or the father of eternity. Those are names and titles that could only ever be reserved for God himself. They could only describe God. And so that's why I say Messiah's names reveal his extraordinary character. He's not only the gift of God, he manifests the very character of God. And finally, there's one last title here. He is also Sar Shalom, the Prince of Peace. He will not only bring, he not only brings vertical peace between individuals and God, but he also brings a horizontal peace between human beings and a horizontal peace between nations. We will see the fulfillment and the full consummation of that one day in the future. In fact, Isaiah 2.4 describes a vision of that future day when it says, and he will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples and they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. 
They won't need weapons of war anymore. Right? They'll convert them to farm implements. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. By the way, did you know that that verse is actually quoted on a wall near the base of the United Nations building? But I'll tell you this, I think the United Nations has been utterly futile at establishing peace between the nations of the world. In fact, if you'll allow me in my humble opinion, the only thing that the United Nations are united in is, the, is in their hatred of Israel. But that's my two cents. But it's, it is this son, not the United Nations, it is this son, the Messiah, that is the only true hope for peace in the world. For peace between God and humanity, for peace between Israel and her enemies, and for peace between all peoples. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The child born to us, the son given to us, is unique, first of all, because he's the gift of God, second of all, because he manifests the very character of God. Finally, the third point in our text this morning is that he is unique because he will usher in the government of God or the kingdom of God. Look at verse 7. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Think about that. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. You know, you look at the world today, we see just the opposite, don't we? There seems to be no end to anarchy, no end to terrorism, no end to suicide bombings, no end to conflict, no end to racial strife. There is no shalom in the world. But as God's government increases, so too will peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace, because he himself is the everlasting father, exercising fatherly care over his people, and because he is the prince of peace. And so his very character will permeate his reign and his kingdom. By the way, this passage leaves absolutely no doubt that it is talking about the Messiah, the descendant of King David, who will usher in an age of justice and righteousness, right? Because it even says in verse 7 that on the throne of David and over his kingdom. There's no denying that Isaiah was talking about the Messiah. That's why all of the ancient rabbis all understood this text to be talking about the Messiah. God made a promise to King David to raise up one of his descendants to sit on his throne forever. This child, this son, would be the fulfillment of that promise. It is going to be a kingdom characterized by justice and righteousness, and I would say to you, you know why? Because a righteous king rules righteously, doesn't he? In fact, it is the only way he knows how to rule. And finally, his government, his kingdom will be established by divine initiative, not 
human agency. It says the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And so the establishment of this government will take the personal intervention of a sovereign God alone through the agency of the child that would be born to us and the son that would be given to us. God will act for the good of his people and his creation. You know, people give a, the whole gamut of gifts these days from electronics and games to books to gift cards. And if we're honest, we love getting gifts, don't we? Who doesn't love, love getting gifts? Okay, Except my son when it's a sweater. But uh, maybe he's changed, by the way. He is 23 now, so... We love getting gifts, but let's not, let us not lose sight this morning of God's gift. You see, the greatest gift is God's. God gave us his son, his one-of-a-kind, unique son, who is the gift of God, the one who manifests the character of God, the one who ushers in the government of God. The New Testament says this in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he what? gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life and so I would submit to you that of all the gifts that one could receive in life or of all the gifts that one could receive at Christmas the greatest gift is God's you know I'll say admittedly that the incarnation the idea that God could become a man and enter the world as a baby is a, is a difficult truth for many to hear. Tragically, it has become and is, for the most part, alien to Jewish ears. I didn't hear about this promise from the lips of my rabbis at the rabbinical school I attended in my youth, but it is a truth spoken of here by the Jewish prophet Isaiah. We therefore have to come to grips with it. We, the Jewish people, and in fact all people, must wrestle and come to grips with the words of Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 in the Hebrew Bible, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. You know, Isaiah wanted his readers to know about this child, didn't he? Isaiah wanted us to know about this child, and so did the authors of the New Covenant or New Testament scriptures. In fact, we read this morning how Luke, the gospel, in his gospel, recorded the promise of the angel Gabriel to Miriam. That was her Hebrew name, by the way, Mary. Okay? You might know her better as Mary. We called her Miriam. I wasn't there, but... Um, <laughs> but she was the mother of, of Jesus, the one chosen to give birth to the promised Messiah, and Gabriel reveals this to her in language very strongly and strikingly reminiscent of and evocative of 
this passage here in Isaiah. And I'll just read that to you from Luke 1, verses 31 to 33. The angel Gabriel says to Mary, And behold, you will conceive him in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. You see the connection to Isaiah's text, right? Now, we don't see him now reigning, right? Though we don't see Jesus now reigning, he will bring in the kingdom when he returns at his second coming as the king who comes to reign, right? He came as the lamb that was slain the first time, but he's coming as the lion of Judah to reign, to establish the righteous reign and kingdom of God. It is then that he will usher in the messianic age and the righteous government of God. The greatest gift is God, the gift of his son, our Messiah and righteous king. God has given him to us. God has given him to the world. May we and might we receive him. You know, gifts can only be enjoyed if they are received. And so my question for you this morning is, have you received God's gift? Have you received the gift of God? Do you know Jesus as your Lord, Savior, and King? Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for this promise. I thank you, Father God, that even as you said in the prophet Isaiah chapter 49, verses 5 and 6, you said it was too small a thing that he should come to gather the tribes of Jacob and restore the preserved ones of Israel, but I will also make you a light to the nations, to the Gentiles, so that the salvation would come to the entire world. Father, thank you for your indescribable gift. Thank you for the gift of your Son. Thank you for the gift of of your righteousness that's transferred to us when we put our trust in him. Lord, I pray that if there be any here today who don't yet know him as Savior and King, I pray, Father God, that you would speak to that individual heart today and they would not leave here today without putting their trust in him as the one who brings life from the dead. We thank you for him. In Jesus' name, amen.